And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Father, we ask, I plead with you this morning, help us to grasp this understanding. Help illuminate our hearts. Let us see more of you this morning, God. Amen. I've been reading, or I guess just finished up yesterday, a biography on a man named Thomas Chalmers. She started another one last night, finished one, started another. He was a pastor in Scotland during the 18th and 19th century. One of the shocking things to read was how the first few years or the first seven years of his pastoral ministry started out. Thomas Chalmers was hardly interested in his congregation. I read this to Sharice last night as we were reading, is that he wrote a pamphlet for the public saying that it is completely fine for the minister to get all of his pastoral duties done in two days so that he can have five days of leisure. He published it for the public to see. 
He was hardly interested in his congregation. In the Church of Scotland, it was a common practice for pastors to make pastoral visits to check up on the congregation, to care for their souls. He would fit all of that caring for soul time into one day and ask as little of questions as possible to hardly care for their souls. His preaching consisted of waking up early on Sunday mornings to pick the text that he would preach, write a sermon on the text that he would preach, and then deliver it. Around year seven, though, he got sick. Deathly sick. For six months, he was in his bed. Would you believe it? While he was reading a William Wilberforce book, he becomes a Christian. He's born again. He's converted on the spot. He goes from being dead to alive. And his congregation benefited immensely from this. As he goes back and his five-minute pastoral visits turns into an hour-long pastoral visit caring for the souls of the people. His preaching that took a back seat entered into the front seat and he was more earnest in his preparation and his delivery. Where his preaching once was all about morality and moral values, because that's in his day what he saw the preaching look like, it turned into gospel-centered messages where people were flocking to come to him to hear on how they could become Christians. He went from being dead to alive. He went from preparing sermons, delivering them all about morality and how to be good citizens of Scotland, to what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. In a society as self-sufficient as ours, I wonder if the modern thought is man is the author, the perfecter, and the finisher of their life. I can't help but wonder if what society says is let's look to our good works. Let's look to our morality and let's justify ourselves to one another why we are good and decent human beings. I've also reflected and asked the question, has this crept into the church? Into the Christian's life? If we just do good works and we are morally good people, can we justify ourselves to one another? Does the church look at their morals and compare themselves to the outside world 
to put themselves on a pedestal? Let me say it plainly like this. There are fractions or functions of those who have conservative morals and say we are trying to maintain conservative morals and traditions in our society and so it is easy to justify themselves because of course this is what pleases God. And yet there are those who have liberal morals and look to justify themselves before God as well, saying we are trying to advance and catch the church up with society. But here's where both are led astray. Our good works, conservative or liberal, are not enough to shock life into our dead spiritual bodies. This is frightening news, and yet on the same hand, it is the most glorious news we could ever realize. In our passage this morning, Paul is showing his readers just how great God's power really is. That is, God takes dead sinners and makes them alive as son, as, sorry, God, he takes his power, he takes dead sinners, and he makes them alive in his son, Jesus. This passage roots us in the reality that we are more sinful than we could ever possibly think. And yet God is more loving than we could possibly imagine. What we are seeing very plainly this morning in our passage is that God transforms dead sinners by making them alive in Christ. God transforms dead sinners by making them alive in Christ. Before this passage, verses 1 through 10, Paul just finished praying that this church would know more of the power of God. That they would understand it and see it and believe it and then worship accordingly. And now what he's going to do is show this church just how powerful God really is. In fact, he's going to remind this church of something important that they should never forget. He's going to show them God's power through the gospel, through the good news. But for there to be good news, normally there is bad news. And in this case, before there is good news, there is rotten news. Paul reminds them of what life was like for them. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This is Paul's understanding of mankind's spiritual state. Dead. Unresponsive. 
Mankind spiritually is not twitching a little bit in need of CPR. Spiritually, man is flatlined. This is because of the first sin. Because of Adam and Eve taking of the fruit and eating of it, they, were, they became spiritually dead. This is the effect of the curse that we now all live under. We are born into sin, and therefore we are born dead spiritually. Paul isn't making this up. He he picks this up from God. If we were to look back in the Old Testament, as God is going to the prophet Ezekiel, He tells Ezekiel, Ezekiel, I will have to perform divine heart surgery on my people. I will have to cut out their heart of stone. Now, I am not a heart surgeon, but I can tell you I don't think it's good to have a heart of stone. That normally indicates unresponsiveness. And yet God is telling the prophet that he will have to crack open the chest cavity and cut out their heart of stone and replace it with a red-blooded, firmed muscle heart that beats after him. To take matters even further, God takes Ezekiel to a valley, and in this valley are dry bones. Did you hear what I said? Dry bones. The flesh is not decaying. The flesh isn't rotten. These bones have been sitting there in the sun, drying out. This is the picture that God gives Ezekiel of what mankind looks like in their spiritual state. Dead and unresponsive. Please notice, before we continue to put one step in front of the other, Paul is specifically reminding the readers of this letter, the church, of their former self. Brothers and sisters, Paul, this is Paul's way of saying, don't forget where you came from. And Paul is is now, he's going to continue and tell his readers what it looks like to be dead in sin. This might be a, a common question that we ask ourselves. What exactly does it look like to be dead in sin? Yes, I've heard the, the, the phrase dead in sin, or that people are sinners, but what exactly does it look like for a person to be a a sinner? What Paul is doing here is, is, you know, when when you bake something, you follow a recipe. Paul right now is giving us the dead in sin recipe. First, Paul says, following the course of this World, we were born to follow. 
And those dead in sin follow the world's way. Those dead in sin, they adopt and embrace the current popular godless trends of the world. But second, why? Paul then says, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul is now saying that those who follow the world are influenced by Satan. Influenced by the sons of disobedience. This is ultimately who is being followed. Third, Paul finishes his recipe with a dose of reality. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul is starting here, this third part of the recipe, by reminding them that there is no moral high ground for any one of us. We all once lived. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying there, you either once lived this way or you are currently living this way. But Paul is also here confronting the idea of, of those who will make the excuse. The world made me do it, Paul. Satan made me do it, Paul. They drug my feet along. I had to go kicking and screaming. I didn't want to, Paul. No, no, that is not the case, Paul says. Paul is saying those who are dead in their sins willingly follows the world, willingly follows Satan, because at the end of the day, those dead in their sin want to fulfill their own fleshly passions. We who were once dead in our sins willingly followed our sin because we desperately wanted our sin. Fish are not taught how to swim and breathe underwater. They are born to do it. Likewise, man is born with no desire for God. Christian, are you sitting on your moral high horse, galloping towards your morally high tower, prepared to look down on those who are dead in their sins? Don't forget what life was like before your salvation. Don't forget that you too were once dead in your sins, a child of wrath, an enemy of God, enjoying and following the world and the devil to satisfy your own passions. You too once willingly followed your passions. 
your anger, your lust, your gossip and slander. This was our former selves. Are you here this morning believing that your conservative morals or liberal morals make you right with God? Look to this passage again. Could it be that you're really just following your own fleshly passions? Yes, it is true that Satan comes in darkness, but he also comes as an angel of light. Your morals will not save you. When God looks at the works of mankind as filthy rags, we are born dead sinners, children of wrath, wanting, desiring to satisfy our own flesh. But God transforms dead sinners by making them alive in Christ. We see that this is where Paul wants to lead his readers. He wants to show them that God transforms dead sinners by making them alive in Christ. We were once in a terrible state. We were once dead, children of wrath, satisfying our own fleshly passions. But look at here what Paul says. But God, but God, a common expression that some say is, I don't want to hear your ifs, ands, or buts, but here we want to hear this but. This is the, the greatest but that Paul has ever penned. In all of Paul's writing, this may be the most amazing one. But God... Paul took three verses to explain man's horrific state with God, woman's broken state with God. But God, Paul is comparing man's power and God's power with these two words, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. This is the power of God. This is the helplessness of man. We see God's rich mercy, His wonderful compassion. This rich mercy is caused because of his great love toward those he loves. Paul is making the, the statement, the fundamental, he, he's saying the fundamental truth that, that God takes dead sinners and makes them alive in his Son, Jesus Christ. Your church attendance will not make you alive. Your Bible reading will not make you alive. Your prayer life will not make you alive. Your political affiliation will not make you alive. Nothing will make you alive other than Jesus Christ. He makes sinners alive. 
It is through his death, his sacrifice for sinners, that deadest sinners are made alive. And why does he do this? It is by grace you are saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying here is that your salvation, being made alive in Christ, is an act of God for God's glory. This is possible because Christ is on the throne. He's seated in the heavenly places and those who are found in Christ get to partake and inherit this gift of eternal life with Christ. It is by faith and faith only that you are saved and it is for God's glory and His glory alone that you are saved. Brother, sister, you have been transformed. You have been made alive in Christ because of God's rich mercy, because of His love with which He loved us. We are clearly seeing God's mercy and great love and power just ooze from this passage. I don't know about you, but this just makes me want to worship God more. I couldn't do it. There was nothing that I could bring to him. There was nothing lovely or attractive about me that caught his attention. And yet out of his love, For me, for you, he sends his son Jesus to die for your sins so that when we trust in him, we can partake, we can be made alive. This is why the church should never have a spirit of dislike for non-Christians. We should see the dead state of humanity the most clearly than anyone could possibly ever see. We should have an understanding of just what sin does in people's lives. It should lead us and motivate us to pray and evangelize all the more knowing that God takes dead sinners and raises them to life. Are you here this morning? Are you here this morning and do not believe in this merciful God with great love, rich mercy? Paul is reminding his readers here, it does not matter how sinful you think you are. You are more sinful than that. And yet God's power is still stronger to raise dead sinners to life. Are you here this morning thinking you're too much of a sinner? 
You're too far gone to receive God's grace. This passage shows us that there is no sinner that can out-sin God's grace. Take this wonderful message. Store it in your hearts. Turn to Jesus and repent of your sins. God has the power to make you alive. Because all are sinners, because all sinners are dead, God has the power to make any sinner alive. Since God is rich in mercy because of his great love toward us, he transforms dead sinners and makes them alive at Christ. Look at how Paul finishes this section of Scripture with me. He finishes it in two ways. It's, it's a summary and a challenge to the church. First, he starts off by reminding them or summarizing, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Verses 8 and 9, Paul is summarizing for us verses 1 through 7. He's saying it's by grace alone, through faith alone, that we are saved. This is the free gift of the gospel. I once heard a story of a, of a man who was having a hard time understanding this truth. The truth that the gospel is a free gift. And as he was sitting down with the, the pastor and, and talking with the pastor and telling him, I don't understand this free gift. I've done all of these wrong things. I, I have to make it up to God in some type of way, shouldn't I? And so the pastor goes home and he wraps up a present for this man and he brings it to the man the next time they meet. It wasn't the man's birthday. There was no special holiday. The pastor was trying to illustrate something. And as he gave the gift to this man, the man said, Why? Why give me a gift? I haven't done anything for you. I haven't worked for you. It's not my birthday. It's not a holiday. And the pastor looks at the man and says, exactly, it is a free gift that I want to give you. And this is what God does for sinners like us. There is no reason other than it being a free gift. All you have to do is trust and receive. We did nothing to deserve grace. We did nothing to deserve the faith to trust in God. This is the free gift that has been given to us, and it is not a work of our own doing. Now, I understand that some have a hard time with this, but let's think about this with logic. If we are dead in our sins, unresponsive, then how could we work for any part of our salvation? This is what Paul is communicating to the church. That salvation is a free gift. If it was up to us in any way, then it would stop being a free gift. It would turn into an act of human works, 
And then we would diminish the power of God and the ableness of the Holy Spirit to raise dead sinners to life. Notice how the difference of what Paul is saying here, of what this free gift looks like, of what takes place, of the power of God. In verses 1 through 10, we see this. Verses 1 through 3, we are told that we are dead in our sins and enemies of God. But in verses 4 through 9, he tells us that we are alive and united with Christ. Verses 1 through 3 told us that we, were, that we willingly followed the world and devil to satisfy our fleshly passions. But verse 10 tells us that we are alive and now willingly work for God. So what takes place here is an identity change. Is that, as Paul says, that we are not our own, but we belong to God. This is the identity change that we need. Because we are his and we are unable to do anything other than sin without his transformation. I didn't know we were going to sing this song today. But really what's taking place here in this identity change is actually what we, saw, what we sung a few songs ago. Once your enemy, now seated at the table. Jesus, thank you. The gospel always has been and always will be. This has been done for you. Now do this. It's been that way because we are unable to do this without the help of God. But because we were made alive in Christ, as Paul finishes this section, he tells us that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are God's workers. We belong to God, and so we work for him. We were made alive spiritually to do good works. Works do not save a person, but they do show that a person is saved. What good works are you walking in? At times, we think of great, big, good works, massive evangelistic efforts or on-the-street preaching or doing some type of great, big thing for God. But what happens if the good work for you is loving your children well? Spending time with them in the Word, praying for them. What if the good work for you is walking alongside someone to encourage them? What if it's treating your coworkers with love 
and compassion? What if the good work is to show patience to your spouse? What if it's honoring your father and mother? Maybe the good work for you that God has prepared beforehand is caring for the poor and lowly in your neighborhood. God transforms dead sinners by making them alive in Christ. We live in a culture that is constantly telling you that you can find your goodness, your worth, your identity in the things that you do, but that is furthest from the truth. We are born sinners, dead spiritually, children of wrath, following the world, Satan, because we want to fulfill our own passion. This is the desperate state that we once lived. But God, being rich in mercy, saw you in your most desperate state, and with rich mercy and great love, makes you alive in Christ through his Son's sacrifice. He gives us an inheritance. He gives us faith. He gives it because it's a free gift. And then he makes us workers for him. What rich mercy and great love our God displays for us. Let's pray. Father, please protect us from spiritual arrogance and forgetting that we too were once dead in our sins. We thank you for your rich mercy and great love. Help that to become bigger, greater in our lives. Amen.